right, well, last week as we uh, continued through our Ephesians uh, series of reaching higher, we talked about the walk of grace, and that is how God has done so much for us that how we live should reflect the many blessings that he gives us. And, you know, we, we often say, you know, don't count your worries, count your blessings, and, and sayings like that. And the reason is there's really a truth to it. Our enemy wants us focused on everything wrong. And if there's not something wrong, what will he do? He'll lie to us and tell us there's something wrong. And that's his favorite, honestly, is to get us worried about something that's not even true. He did it in the garden. Did God really say and got Adam and Eve worried about something that wasn't even true? Or... We can worry about things, or what can we do? We can look to the things that God has done. Things that nothing in this world or out of this world can erase, can change. Jesus Christ died for our sins, and nothing can change that or take that away from us. And when we start looking at the blessings that God has given us, the the hard truth as we saw in Ephesians 1 through 3 of everything that he has done and the prayer life that he wants us to have to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge, the experience of him. It's this huge open door invitation. God saying, come and experience, come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good and you will walk within this goodness. And so when we start to to take that grace walk, we need to be ready to be challenged. Can we agree on that? If our first instinct in this broken world as fallen people is to focus on what is wrong, then that means we're going to have to learn how to focus on what is right, on what is good. it's not going to be natural. Is anything that God is going to call us into going to be, quote, easy? No. Now let me let you in on a secret. That's why God did all the hard work up front for us. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why he forgave our sins. That's why he gave us grace. That's why he gave us his spirit. That's why he gave us his word. And as we're going to see today, gave us other gifts so that he can say, look, I've given you everything you need for this trip, for this journey of life. I have provided everything you need. We just have to learn how to use it. And you know, learning how to use new tools How many of you have enjoyed that in life? Right? It's hard, right? I mean, you you just, you're not good at it. How many of us like that, you know, learning period where we're learning something new and we feel completely useless? Right? You you start, just whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You, You could be learning, you know, to cook a new recipe or learning to build a house. It doesn't matter. When you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what you're doing. And there's that time in there where we just feel useless. And we're like, am I ever going to learn this? Look, we all will go through that in life. 
with our spiritual walk. God does not expect us to get saved and then the next day have it figured out. But what he does expect us is to build to maturity. And that's what Paul is going to get into here is building to maturity in the Christian faith. We never arrive. Okay, let me just get you off the hook there or perfectionists in here, you're never going to be perfect. Okay, just go ahead and come to terms. I know for some of you that's going to be harder than others. But just come to terms with that. We don't arrive in this life. There's never going to be a time where we're going to not need grace. There's never going to be a time we're not going to need faith. There's never going to be a time when we're not going to wake up and say, God, how do I do this today? We, we are always going to be moving towards something. But that doesn't mean that we don't improve. That doesn't mean that we don't grow. We do change. And that's what God wants us to focus on after we've received grace. Again, we are not earning grace. We are not earning acceptance with God. What we are learning is how to walk in that grace. We are learning how to live by that grace. Because God does have a standard. Okay, can we just agree on that very quickly? That God does have standards for his people? Somewhere along the line in our culture, we've forgotten that. And, and I really mean that. We, we were so hellfire and brimstone at one time that, of course, the pendulum always overcorrects. And we've come over to this place now where God apparently accepts everything. And even a cursory look at Scripture tells us God does not accept everything. He will accept anyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. The key word there is repentance. We, we don't get to drag the world into the kingdom of God and say, but God, you said you'd accept me. He said, no, I told you I would accept you if you let that go. Turn it loose and you can come to me. And if you won't turn it loose, he won't accept you. We learned that lesson in the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he knew, Jesus knew that this young man being wealthy, had an idol in his heart of his wealth and his power. And so he told him, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. And the guy walked away sad. Did Jesus reject him? In a sense, yeah. The guy rejected Jesus too. Because Jesus wasn't going to tell the guy, yes, come follow me and we'll figure it out along the way. Repentance had to happen. And so he did reject this man's idol that he had attached himself to. And so he was a static character, meaning unchanging, an unchanging character in Scripture. Now, those who come to Jesus, what do we see in Scripture? They change. They are not static. There's no such thing as a static Christian because God is always working, always building always moving us forward in some sense. And how does he do that? Well, we will see how he does that in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, going to verse 14. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he 
had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Okay. Does that feel like Paul started one place and finished someplace completely different? Well, what we got to start with to understand if we are going to build to maturity in our lives, any spiritual growth endeavor, any spiritual growth endeavor, begins with inexhaustible grace from the unlimited Savior. It begins with his work, not ours. It begins with who he is, not who we are. And this is the problem with so much spiritual growth stuff in our world right now is we focus on it like we're in control of it. Like it's some legalistic checklist that if I just do this, 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 and this, I will grow. Let me tell you something. Spiritual growth is not a formula that you can make happen. I will never forget when I was working on my doctorate, I was in Kansas City, and I had pretty a couple of long days in, in seminar, and, and I wanted to just kind of clear my head, so I, I went to a Zona Rosa, was walking around, and stopped in a coffee shop, and I was reading a book, and in this book, the author was talking about spiritual growth, and there was something that caught me in it, because he said, I will not spend one more moment of my life on spiritual growth. Now, this is somebody working on his doctorate, like clearly trying to grow and, you know, prepare and, and all of this. And I thought, well, that's a weird thing to say. And he says, I won't do it. I will not waste. And he said waste. He says, I will not waste one more moment of my life on spiritual growth. And then he went in to explain, because I'm not in control of that. He says, what I will spend my time doing is being thankful to God and listening to him and trying my best to follow him and to experience the life he wants me to have, which means I'm going to put down the book occasionally and go out and enjoy walking in the grass without my shoes on. And, and I'm going to live, and I'm going to stop thinking that I can make myself into something else. And man, that spoke to me. I don't remember a whole lot more out of that book, but that, that stuck. Because every bit of spiritual growth we're going to have is all done through the work of Christ. That same faith that saved you, that same faith that was desperate and said, I need a Savior, God. I can't save myself. I can't get rid of my sin. I can't do this, God, is the same faith that we come to God and say, God, I want to know you better. I can't do it. I can't change my heart. Who in here has put that effort in to figure out after tons of effort, you can't change your own heart? You, you can't. Because only the power of God through Christ and the Spirit, He is the only one who can change the human heart. 
And so that's why Paul starts where he does talking about this gifting and what he wants to happen in our lives. And the goal of spiritual growth is because we have to be focused on the Savior and the grace that he gives. And so let's look again, verses 7 through 10. He says, but grace, two great words in Scripture, but grace. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What is the measure of Christ's gift? He gave his life on the cross. It was unlimited. It was a a, a total and complete sacrifice of himself. You see, the grace that is given to us is not given on a merit-based system or, or a wage system where if you do these certain things, God will give you grace. It's based on Christ's work, which was his death on the cross for us. So it's not about earning or, or deserving grace. It's about the work that Christ has already done. And I know I keep repeating that because I'm hoping that it will land. We have to know that it's all about him. It is according to his, the measure of Christ's gift. So God doesn't look at one person and say, well, you deserve this much grace and you deserve this much grace. He looks at everybody and says, Christ died for all of you. And the grace that you will receive will be based on his sacrifice and not your worthiness. Not your worthiness, not your efforts. Not the return that he's going to get on it. It's based on his work. And so the cross is the greatest gift that mankind will ever receive. But to understand the enormity of the gift, we have to step into the greatness of the one who gave the gift. And that is Jesus himself. And so Paul understands this. So what does he do? We, we get a little bit of what we would call in theology Christology right here, okay? He's going to tell us who Jesus is. And in typical Paul fashion, it's not what you think. It's not, it, it doesn't just work how we think. But he says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Christ is a conqueror. He is a victorious conqueror. You see, in Roman times, whenever they would go and conquer a civilization, when they would go and conquer another culture, they would take the best warriors. They would take the, the, the most impressive you know, warriors and people out of that culture and they would put them in a procession as they would go back to Rome and they would show off to the people, here's who we conquered. They would lead those captives in procession, in triumphal procession. And what does it say that Jesus did? He took the captives and he leads us in triumphal procession. Jesus is saying, look, these are mine. But he did it by conquering. This is a military image right here. Do not lose sight of that. This is something that every Jewish person, every Roman person, Greek person, they lived in such a barbaric time, and I mean that, they almost would shudder to think, they're like, ooh, I've seen those processions, and is this a good thing? Because many times what would happen in these, these military processions, they'd cut their thumbs off. They would cripple them in some way and say, here's their greatest warriors, and now they are, they're useless because we have defeated them. 
But Jesus does something different. See, this is where Paul, he, he uses the military imagery of the, the, the host of captives. And then it says, and he gave gifts to men. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't fit. That is a whole different thing. So he's leading them in triumphant, and it's like he's throwing gifts to them along the way. That's not, that image won't compute in, in that culture. And so he says, and he gave gifts to men. And then he wants you to say, wait a minute, wait, we, he's getting ahead of himself. Uh, okay. And so he pauses, and this is why in the parentheses in here, in verse 9, it says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. You see, Paul tells us some fundamental truths about Jesus here. He ascended on high after descending to the earth. Any ideas what he's talking about? The Son of God is eternal and has always been. As ancient theologians used to say, there was never a time when Christ was not. He is the pre-existent Son of God who has existed for all eternity as the second person of the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Spirit Trinity. Jesus was not created. He simply came as a man. But the Son existed before that. And so when he came to earth in that virgin birth, he existed before that birth in heaven. And that's what Paul wants us to grab hold of here. We are not following a philosophy. We are not following just a great leader. We are not following one of the pagan gods who may or may not exist. We are following the preexistent Son of God who appeared in history as the man, Jesus Christ, died for our sins, was resurrected and ascended back to heaven and given the name that is above all names. That is who we follow. And we have to remember that because if we get the focus on anything else, we are now focused on something, anything else, we are now focused on something that is powerless. Even if it's ourselves or, or even if it's a philosophy, even if it's something about the Bible but is not focused on Jesus. There is a whole lot that we can get wrong that it suddenly becomes powerless to change the human heart and mature us in grace. And so Paul wants us to be focused like a laser beam on who Jesus is. Jesus is not a created being. And how does Paul explain this in another place? In Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now get this, for by him all things were created. Now, what do we read in Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him... All things hold together. Let me say that again. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Reality exists because the Son of God wills it to be so. His power 
holds the universe together. This is who we follow. And it says, and he is before all things, and all things hold together, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. We have a special relationship to him. Not only does he hold all of creation together, but we who are born again are a part of his body. And he is the head. We have a special relationship with him. A special bond. And I'm not just talking an emotional, hey, we love him and he loves us. I mean, we are connected. And the theme that runs through Ephesians, we are in Christ. We are, our spirit is connected to him because he gave us his spirit to be within us. We are connected to him. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That is saying that in all things, God will ultimately be glorified. In all things. And by God, we mean Jesus. He will be glorified in all things. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Go ahead and wrap your mind around that for just a second. In the man, Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the unlimited, infinite God was pleased to dwell. This is who we follow. This is who can change the human heart. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, this is why Paul needed to pause and say, hey, he who ascended in the resurrection was also he who descended and came down here. He was already God, and he came down here, and he went back up, and he's still God. He never stopped being God. He's always been God, and we need to remember that because what has he done? He has led a host of captives, and he's giving them gifts. You see, he has won. He is the victor, and in his victory... He brings with him those who were enslaved and are now free. His victory train is a lot different from what they would have seen in Roman times. See, he didn't disable his captives. He freed them. And as he leads them in triumphal procession, you know what? They're following him because they want to. They are following him in victory saying, yeah, he won and we're with him. And he says, yeah, if you're with me, here's some gifts. Here are the gifts. Here, keep following me because I am gifting you so that you can follow me. So that I will be glorified. He led a host of captives. Slaves were freed. The oppressed were oppressed no more. Now, this sounds very familiar because in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, Jesus himself read this scroll to the people and said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That is who Jesus is. And we have to lock this in. We can't ever forget. We cannot allow our view 
in our understanding of who Jesus is to ever be anything less than he is almighty God. Yes, meditate on it. Think about the, the, the absolute paradox of what it means for a man to be both fully man and fully God at the same time. Yes, let your mind go into a pretzel trying to think about that. But think about it anyway. And think, think deeply about what it means then that he gave his life on the cross, that he willingly gave his life for those who were sinful who had rebelled against him. That our creator stepped out of heaven and gave his own life so that his creation that hated him could once again be reunited with him. That sure makes everything else pale in comparison, doesn't it? I mean, really, when, when, if we're going to start looking at the problems of this world and say, oh, wait a minute, God died for me, and he's back in heaven, and he's promised me eternity, and he says all things work together for the good of those who love him, I, I think I'm going to be okay. I think God's got this. He created the universe, and he conquered death. I think he can handle my situation. Now, it doesn't mean your situation isn't scary or stressful retiring. It just means it's not the end of the story. That God will bring you through. And so he tells us he gave gifts to men. Now Paul will define those gifts later, but here Jesus gave from a position of ultimate authority and victory. Okay, th this is not giving out the scraps. This is the king giving out what he wants his people to have in abundance, in grace. He is giving because he is above all. He ascended far above all the heavens, creation that he might fill all things. Jesus gives from the position of authority and mastery and victory. And so, what does he give? Let's get to those gifts. He gives gifts to the body of Christ for kingdom purposes. Christ gave gifts to the body of Christ for kingdom purposes. Now, I chose these words pur purposefully and carefully. He gave gifts to whom? Is there any I there? Is there a me in that? No. He gave gifts to the body, which is the church. See, this is where church becomes necessary. Again, no, you don't have to be saved. You don't have to go to church to be saved. You do have to go to church and be involved in the body of Christ if you want to know what God is doing, if you want to be blessed by his gifts, if you want to be a part of his kingdom work in this world, if you want to mature as a Christian, yes, church is necessary. It just is. And so, what does he say in verses 11 and 12? It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. That doesn't sound very self-helpy, does it? That doesn't sound very your best life now, does it? In fact, there was a four-letter word in there that a lot of people probably don't like. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
what, God's calling us to work for him? Work? Yeah, work. Which means effort, which means struggle, which means sweat, which means striving, which means learning, which means cooperating. This is God's will for us. And he gave us gifts to help us accomplish it. Because, you see, what would happen in those Roman processions many times is what would they do? They would take the, the, the warriors and everything. They would conquer them, and then they would hobble them in some way. But then what would they use them for? Slaves. Slaves. You are here to do my work. We conquered you. You lost. And you are now my slave. And Paul is grabbing hold of this imagery and he's turning it on its head in some ways, but in other ways he's letting us know, oh, some of the metaphor still fits. He's still the conquering warrior. He is still the one who won the battle in the war. He's still the one in charge. We are his people. He's giving us gifts and we're following him because he's worth following and and we want to follow him, but we still work for him. Our lives are his. He conquered sin and death and now owns us. We who come to him in faith and give our lives to him, he owns us. And so he puts us to work in his fields. Now, it's a glorious field. Don't don't let that, you know, get into your your pride. That, well, look, we're working eternal fields here and, and this is far better than anything this world could offer. And we need to understand he's calling us to a high and exalted service of the king. And he's giving us gifts. Instead of hobbling us, what is he doing? He's giving us gifts to build us up so that we can do it. He says, I have a job for you, and I'm going to equip you to do it so that you can accomplish my will. And so, what are the gifts that he gave? He gave us the apostles. Now, we know in the New Testament, those were, they were the ones that were sent by Christ personally in his authority as his authoritative representatives on earth. They spoke for Christ. Their word was absolute. He said, this is when, when Jesus said, you know, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind all that I have spoken. He was speaking to the apostles so that their teaching would be just as authoritative as his because they're going to teach what he taught. And as they died, their authority, their words were collected where? The New Testament. So when it says he gave us the apostles, there's kind of a, a dual gift here is one, it was people. It establishes in history. We, we see that these people live. We can follow their lives in the book of Acts in many ways to see what happened, how the church grew, how God used them. But then as they died, their writings and their teachings were transferred to scripture and the authority of the apostles was transferred to the New Testament writings. And so we are not without the foundation that the apostles laid. Early churches were given validity because the apostles, one of the apostles would go visit that church and see that the Holy Spirit was present, that that they had put their faith in Jesus, and they would sign off on it. Yes, this is a part of the church. They believed the right things because they didn't have the New Testament yet. 
So the apostles would teach them the truth and, and, and validate that these churches are legitimate. Now, are we a Bible-believing church? It is the Bible. It is the truth of God that validates our faith. And so God has given us the very foundation we need to build his kingdom in this world. And it begins with the apostles, which for us means the scriptures. That is the foundation. We don't build on anything else. We don't build on self-help. We don't build on charisma. We don't build on money. We don't build on politics. We don't build on culture. I know that seems weird in today's age, but we don't build on the culture around us. We build on the truth of Scripture. And then what does it say? He gave the prophets and the evangelists. If we have an authoritative message, what do we do with that authoritative message? We proclaim it. What do prophets and evangelists do? They proclaim the authoritative message. Irrespective of what the world thinks. When you think of an Old Testament prophet at his best, what do you think of? You think of somebody standing before a horde of unbelieving people saying, you need to repent. Here's what God says, thus saith the Lord. And they don't back down. Now, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, what do we have? We have, in many ways, some will disagree with me on this, and that's okay. I think part of our, our move to a New Testament on that is the evangelist. Because what does the evangelist do? The evangelist goes into a horde of unbelieving people and says, repent and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of the same thing. And he says, God gifts us with those people. He gifts us with the prophets. He gifts us with the evangelists so that we can accomplish our goal. You know why? Because every church begins with somebody being bold enough to stand up and say, hey, everybody, put your faith in Jesus. And a whole lot of people say no, but a few people say yes, and a church is born. And the church doesn't ever stop doing that. And they continue to proclaim the message. And you know what? God gifts his people, prophets and evangelists, who are gifted in that very thing. Now, we get all kinds of, you know, mixed up in words and everything. Um, think church planners today. Those who are willing to go start a church in a very dark place. Wondering how are we going to do You know, God sends them in there. Those are the prophets and evangelists going in and starting a work where it doesn't exist. And God gifts people to do that. And then, what does he say next? Prophets, evangelists, and then he says the shepherds and teachers. Because once a church is established, what starts to happen within that church if it's healthy? The weekly preaching of God's word, the discipleship and teaching of God's word to the people so that they can grow in Christ and in faith. And what does God do? He provides for that step as well. And he says, I will provide all of these churches, the, the pastors, the shepherds, 
that will look over you and lead you to Christ. And I will provide you the teachers that are going to disciple you and, and, and teach you the word of God so that you can do the work of ministry. One of the slyest things that Satan ever did was convince people that what I do is the ministry. That's not what he says right here, is it? What is my job, according to Ephesians here, is to equip you for the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? What is the work of ministry? The work of ministry is that you would glorify God in every single way in your life, that you would share his love, that you would walk in his ways, that you would bear witness to the truth of God in a dark world. In your world. And it's my job to equip you of that. To do that. And it's why, if I can just be personal for just a moment, it's why I don't do a whole lot of the entertainment stuff. Because I don't want to stand before God one day and he says, you didn't equip my people, you entertained them. No. I'll have plenty to answer for, but I do not want that to be one of them. In the book of James, he says, not many should be teachers because we will be held to a higher standard. And so I, my, my heart genuinely has so long has been this very thing in Ephesians that I want to equip you to walk with God in a dark world. And that's why sometimes if I've got to tell you the hard truth, I will. Sometimes it's going to hurt. Sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes people are going to hate you for it. Jesus said, the world hates you. No, it hated me first. You're not doing anything new. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. These are the gifts that, that he has given. And so discipleship and worship within the church have to take place. And they take place because God gifts the church with the, the shepherds and the teachers necessary to keep it going. But it's about the bigger picture. No church is just about the pastor. And when it becomes that, it just becomes this weird cult of personality thing that's going on. And it may grow really big, but you know what happens when that pastor leaves? It dies. And I've seen it. And you know why? Because twice in my life, I've been the next guy that followed that. Y'all need to feel sorry for that guy sometimes. <laughs> When he steps into a place and it's been all about the personality and the next guy comes in and says, okay, let's get in the word of God. And they're all like, this isn't fun. What are we doing? I don't like you. And they leave. You see, we get our focus off. And when we do that, it loses its power. And yeah, we can entertain a bunch of folks at once, but man, something changes and all of a sudden you see what kind of power there was because it just disintegrates. In an instant. You know what? That's something I love about this church. And I mean that. It's been here for over 150 years. You know what I love about that? That means that it has been about the gospel. Because God has kept it going. 150 years. And you know what? We don't have pictures of all the previous pastors everywhere. You know why? Because it's about Jesus. It's not about any of us. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. And we've got to keep it there. 
Because that's what he tells us this is about. Because, listen in, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, why is this all so important? Well, because I want you to remember something Paul said in Ephesians 3.10. See, this is where we forget sometimes what Paul has already told us. In Ephesians 3.10, he says that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. Wait a minute. We're, we're in an eternal scope of action here. We're in something very important, something that God is working throughout all eternity, and we get to be a part of it. I think it's important we get it right, that we stay focused where we're supposed to be focused on the gospel and on who Jesus is. And so, what the gifts all have in common is that they are ministries of the word that proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of those gifts are a ministry of the word. Prophet, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. They all are ministries of the word. They are all ministries that proclaim the gospel. It's not about any personality. It's not about any culture. It is a foundation on Jesus Christ and his work. That means everything that we do has to be focused and grounded there. Everything. And so, as Christ is proclaimed... In his words, studied and understood, it equips those within the church to live by faith and engage in the work of ministry in this world. Now, I hope that this seems a little familiar to you because we have becoming a worshiper, becoming a student of scripture and prayer, become a servant witness, become a disciple maker. What we are focusing on is the process of building to maturity in the Christian life. And so, what do we have? We have unity and maturity then are the goals. Listen to verses 13 and 14. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Unity of faith and a unity of experiential knowledge of Christ. Notice I said unity of experience. That's something very different. It's not just that we agree on things. It's that we're following the same God. And, and Paul has already pointed this out. What he says is there's one Lord, one God, one Savior, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one body. If we are all following the one God, one spirit, then that means that our experience should all have that signature of the divine attached to it. The God of love, the God of grace, everything should come back to that. And so we should have a shared love, a shared hope, a shared strength that is anchored in the fullness of Christ. And what this maturity looks like when we are actively doing what God tells us to do means that we, we, become an immovable force for the kingdom of God. 
immovable. You see, Paul is introducing it now, but it will be brought up later in spiritual warfare. But the whole idea is that we stand and we are not moved. Here, he says that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You see, we know who we are, what we believe, and what we're about, and it doesn't change. And so when some new fad comes along that the world jumps wholehearted into, we look at it and say, eh, don't need it. Don't need it. I have Jesus. It's enough. And we have each other within that. And so, with that in mind, I have to ask myself this question. Because if unity of faith and experience are the goal, I know I'm maturing because I'm connecting with the body of Christ and I'm using my gifts in this world. If that is maturing, then I have to ask myself this question. How are others benefiting from my growth in Christ? If we are truly growing in Christ, following the process that I believe is biblical, there comes that point where we take the shift from a personal faith to a servant faith to a disciple-making faith. And if we short-circuit that anywhere along the way, we've stopped following Christ as we're supposed to. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to become, you know, the next Billy Graham or something like that. God, those are specific giftings that God gives, and we know those. But within the church, within the body, that we have this shared unity, this shared experience, we help build up unity in the church, there comes the point where we turn the corner in our Christian faith and we become servants. And our faith then is not just our own, it becomes how can we help others grow in their faith. So this week, I want you to ask yourself that question. How are others benefiting from my growth in Christ? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day. And God, I thank you that you have given us all that we need. You have equipped the body of Christ with your word, with the the, the spirit necessary, with your Holy Spirit, your power is available, and God, you have ordered things and, and given gifts that make everything possible. I pray you help us to be good stewards of your gifts. God, that we would seek to see others benefit from our faith. God, that we would not keep your grace to ourselves, God, that we would We would become the people that you want us to be that are disciple makers. That are actively sharing the love of God with others. Leading them to you. Walking by grace. Focused on the one who has ascended far above all. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.